across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The day is only just getting underway, but already uh, we have a whole host of great headlines to bring you. Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon is fighting for her political life with her appearance before MSPs in Edinburgh, probing whether she broke the ministerial code and if so, uh, whether she will have to uh, disappear from view. How many bits of the ministerial code did she break? How many bits of it are important enough if if she did break them, she will have to resign? She's characteristically defiant in the face of calls which came in last night for her to resign from the Scottish Tory leadership. Meanwhile, it's budget day. Chancellor Rishi Sunak has already revealed that the furlough scheme will be extended to September. Much against my suggestion on Sunday uh, that he should do away with it altogether and get everybody back to work. What else will he reveal from his little red box? We'll be asking John Rental, chief political commentator from The Independent. The big story this morning, though, is the revelation that Meghan Markle was facing a claim of bullying from staff at Kensington Palace shortly before she and Harry jetted off out of the country. I wonder whether those two things could be connected. And perhaps more embarrassingly, she was pictured wearing a pair of earrings given to her as a wedding gift by Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia's crown prince, who's accused currently by the CIA and President Joe Biden of approving the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey. Hypocrisy much? We'll be asking royal author Angela Levin for the lowdown. Very nice pair of earrings, though, I have to say. So thank you very much indeed. If you are a friend uh, of the Saudi Arabian Crown Prince, MBS, you'll know he's a very generous man. Uh, and I'm sure Meghan Markle uh, will be absolutely certain uh, that she's good friends with a man who's been accused of murder in Turkey. 0344 499 Later on, Neil Oliver joins us with his take on the situation in Holyrood as Nicola Sturgeon continues to answer questions on what she knew and when she knew it. She's convinced herself that she hasn't done anything wrong. So that's all right then. That's what happens when you live in a one-party state. You don't think anybody else's opinion actually matters. We'll hear as well from Tory MP Andrew Griffith ahead of this week's Prime Minister's questions. And as ever, we will be in the company of Talk Radio's political correspondent, Charlotte Ivers. An awful lot going on today. Goodness gracious me. 03444991000. I'd like to report to you uh, on what the weather is doing, but I literally can see nothing out the window. Uh, It appears that we have got clouds descending upon us here uh, on the 17th floor of News UK. And I can't even see the river. Never mind the Tower of London, for heaven's sake. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you, your stories of hope, of experience and of pain. Yesterday we told you of a business that was steadfastly refusing to endorse vaccine passports uh, and indeed would never require workers to have taken the vaccine. Today there are calls for all NHS staff to be made to take it. I want to know what you think. 0344 499 1000. This is the home of common sense. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, time to say a very, very good morning to Mr John Rental. John, uh, welcome back to the show. I can't think of a busier uh, time when we, you and I have ever had a conversation. Good morning, Mike. Yeah, no, a busy day. Looking forward to it. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to work How do you out. Like my earrings. Um, well, I mean, as long as you didn't take them from some bloodthirsty dictator in the Middle East, you'll be fine. Um, as long as you didn't charge them to the taxpayer like Angela Rayner did, you'll also be fine. Um, so, uh, 
<laughs> so I that's, paid for these myself. Well, I mean, that's the trouble, isn't it? The struggles that we people uh, in the business of journalism have to face. Not only do we get persecuted by HMRC, not only do some people not get help when they don't, they can't work, uh, but we more or less have to pay for everything ourselves. Shock horror, and not get any of, any of it re reimbursed for heaven's sake. I mean, ludicrously, people saying, "Well, Angela Rayner needs those earring, uh, those uh, uh, headphones, earphones <laughs> to do her job." Well, what about you and me and everybody else who needs them? You know. Well, quite. I'm not sure if they're tax deductible. I'd have to investigate I'm that. sure then. I mean, almost everything that used to be tax deductible no longer is. And, and after today, you know, who knows what will be. But I can't work out quite yet whether Nicola Sturge is the warm-up act for Rishi Sunak or whether it's the other way around. Well, I, it, it's still failing my uh, my headline test, I'm afraid. I mean, all the headlines uh, don't have a story in them. No. And that suggests to me that there isn't a story. I mean, the, the, the substantial issue on, on all this is... Um, you know, did uh, did Alex Salmon uh, behave badly? He's admitted he 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 did. Uh, did he behave criminally? Um, the court acquitted him. Yes. Um, but uh, on one charge, it found uh, it found not it found he was not proved. The charge was not proven, mm. uh, which means there's a slight shadow still hanging over his reputation. Well, that, uh, but, but unfortunately, that, but, but that unfortunately is the nature of those kinds of trials, isn't it? Because for some people, even if you're cleared completely. If you've been accused of those kinds of, uh, of, of sort of infractiones, if you like, uh, your, your reputation is forever tainted. And that's one of the unfortunate things well, about the way the legal system works. Well, in Scotland, yes. But I mean, his, his reputation is tainted by himself because he admitted he, he, he didn't behave uh, well uh, to, to some of the women. Um, and, uh, you know, the question the, his his charge against Nicola Sturgeon is that she she somehow pursued some kind of legal vendetta against him. Well, given, uh, given, I, I, well, I mean, given, well, given what came out last night, which in a way has preempted this case today and her uh, appearance today, that the legal decision that they were given, the legal advice that the Scottish government was given not to pursue this case would suggest that that's right. Because if you're told as well, the First Minister of Scotland, do not pursue this case and you do it anyway, one can only conclude, surely, that you've got some kind of personal reason for doing so. No, not at all. Can you imagine, Mike, if, if she had suggested that... Uh, that the case shouldn't be pursued. That these these allegations against Alex Salmon uh, of uh, of sexual harassment and uh, and worse, uh, if if she had if she had said suggested that they shouldn't be uh, taken to court and tested in court, you can imagine the outcry now. Would uh, you know the, the suggestion of a cover up and of the SNP sort of pulling pulling together to try and uh, to try and protect Alex Salmon's reputation? I think it was absolutely right that those the, that those allegations should have been tested in court. Uh, I well, think, you say you know, that, but let's got... let's look at the situation regarding the black cab rapist uh, uh, war boys and David Gork, who at the time was the Attorney General. Now, he was asked uh, to produce evidence for a judicial review to make sure that he could not be released. He said he was advised against it. Now, that uh, was also ridiculous because yeah. everybody with a brain could see that there should have been a judicial review. And eventually there was one uh, brought by two private individuals. But in the end, yeah, but... you know, if you are what she was not was transparent. What she should have said You're was no, no. no, what she should have said was I've been advised not to pursue this case by my own legal department. However, I'm going to do it despite that. However, there will be a cost to the taxpayer. She could have made that very obvious, but she didn't. Well, maybe. But I mean, you're making my point for me, which is that uh, politicians shouldn't always accept uh, the legal advice that they're given. They should they should question it and they should challenge it. Yes, I, but I'm what, not sure. Yes, but why think... was she keeping it hidden for so long? 
I don't know that she was keeping it hidden. I mean, well, she was. That, that there's is, no, there's that's a fact. No. That is a fact. She was asked no, to produce it. It was, it was, re it was redacted. Uh, the Lord Advocate's Office refused to make it public. The committee, right. up until last night, refused to make it public until it was forced to do so. Okay, well, I'm not. I'm not interested. I, I mean, I don't care. Well, you may not be interested, uh, John. The, the I'm question, sorry you don't. Is... I'm sorry you don't care about the <laughs> no, rule the of law and 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 proper <laughs> behaviour in 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 public office. I'm sorry you don't care about that. But a lot of people I do. do. I'm interested. I'm interested in the substance, Mike. And the substance is that Alex. You don't seem to be very interested in, in the court. facts. And he was acquitted. Uh, yeah, he, and he and he was acquitted. But it was right that he was that that he should have gone to court. And I think. Uh, if she was advised that you know there was a chance that, that the government would lose it or that it was likely that the government would lose that case, uh, then I think she was still entitled to exercise her judgment as to whether it was worth pursuing. And I think she, she made the right decision. Well, you, well, it may be that you come to that conclusion at this point in time. However, do you not accept that she has not acted uh, well in this episode? I mean, you talk about Alex Salmon no. not, but not behaving particularly well. She has not behaved particularly well either. She is reluctantly dragged before this committee to tell a story that she claims she's been wanting to tell for a very long time, but somehow has refused to do so. And I think it's very clear yeah. that she has lost the uh, trust of an awful lot of the Scottish people and she's lost the trust of an awful lot uh, of people in Parliament as well. Yeah, I know. I think she's she's made some procedural mistakes, and she's um, and she's actually confessed to it. I mean, she's admitted it and and, and apologised for them. Well, people are, uh, people think, are already uh, putting around the meme of the thick of it, where the guy says, "Well, it's always very yeah. difficult to remember what you've forgotten because otherwise you wouldn't have forgotten it in the first place." <laughs> I did it. I did enjoy that, Mike. That was that was very good. I I retweeted it after you. After you I mean, retweeted because it. there it's, is a certain there is a certain comic uh, aspect to all of this, where people who are politicians sit very you know sort of stony faced and try to convince everyone that they who remember everything that they've ever done have forgotten one thing that they didn't do because it doesn't suit them. No, I, th I, th I think life in politics is much more complicated than that. I think it's very difficult to remember which meeting happened when. Uh, and you've got, to, you've got to keep your eyes focused on the substance. And on the substance, I think, you know, although she may have made procedural mistakes, I think Alex Salmon's behaviour has been far worse than... Than yeah, I mean, but, that's un but that's kind and, of unfair and, and, and to Alex Salmond, though, John. That's kind of unfair because you're basically equating two different things. You cannot say... Well, of course um, I... Well, that, I know I'm comparing I mean, there's lots, there's lots saying of people, one is worse than the other. I mean, that's like somebody saying, well, Boris Johnson's a bit of a, a, a philanderer and he gets himself involved with lots of different women. Therefore, uh, he doesn't behave very well and that has some bearing on his reputation as Prime Minister. I mean, if you want to go down that road, we can. But the point is, I don't think that's very fair to politicians if you take them uh, at face value. Every human being is flawed in one way or another. Uh, but Alex Salmond yeah. was tried in a court. I mean, she made what I think is a disgraceful statement, which was to say that just because he was found not guilty doesn't mean he didn't do it. It was an extraordinary don't thing you. for the head of government of a country to say. I don't think she said that. She did, I think, actually. I think she did no, say well, exactly okay, well, that. Well, in that case, she shouldn't have said that. But, yeah. I mean, the, the point is that Alex Salmond himself admitted that he had behaved badly. Yeah, but behaving badly uh, is a very interesting uh, conversation to have. What does that mean? You know, behaved badly. Well, it's inappropriate for a, it's inappropriate for a first minister to to um, to sexually harass or whatever it was he did. 
uh, women who who worked for him. I mean, in the civil service or uh, or in the yes. SNP. But does I mean, that mean? But, this is all, but does that mean? This is John, all ancient we, history. Well, yeah, but it is. But it's cost the taxpayer an awful lot of money. It's destabilised government. It's it's making uh, a mockery of what they're trying to do with the Scottish Parliament. And the whole issue in no. Scotland right now for an awful lot of people is they should be trying to get us out of the pandemic and they should be performing better as a government instead of being obsessed uh, with trying to knife each other in the back constantly. Could I could not agree more. But I mean, the, the, but the villain of the piece is, is Alex Salmon, who, who in six hours... Not according to the court. The other day, well... The, I'm, I meant the the moral the moral oh, the moral villain of should, the piece should, right, okay. should fall should fall on him. He is the one who tries who admitted he behaved badly and and yet expressed absolutely no remorse or regret for it uh, in in his in his brilliantly sort of self vindicatory sort of uh, evidence the other day. Uh, whereas you know I think I think uh, Nicola Sturgeon has you know stumbled once or twice on procedure, but mm. I mean on on the, it generally has behaved behaved quite properly. But I mean you're absolutely right. The question is is the SNP a good government of Scotland? I think it isn't. I think it's shocking. No, I think it's, it's got a shocking itself. record it's, on edu- yeah. education, drugs, deaths, and mm-hmm. all the rest of it. And I think it's proving itself now to be something less than the sainted version that we used to think it was. Uh, not, I, not that I did, because I worked up there and I know people who know what's really going on. But the bottom line for me uh, is that I still think that this is damaging to Nicola Sturgeon because in the end, Alex Salmond is no longer the First Minister. She is, and she has to be held yeah. up to a higher standard. And while you say that she may have just made the odd mistake, she's made some pretty glaring errors now in all sorts of areas, including the care homes problem they've got, including the number of deaths yeah. in Scotland, the vaccine rollout, you know, some of the stuff that she's been coming out with, which is very anti-English, uh, quite frankly. And I, I think she's in, in dangerous waters. I don't think she's going to last. Well, I'm, uh, I, I, I wish you were right, because uh, she is the she is the most dangerous uh, weapon that the SNP have, and she is the most serious threat to the uh, integrity of, uh, of, of the country that I love and mm. want, to see, want to see stay together. Absolutely. Um, but I don't, I, I don't want, um, I, I don't want the SNP to be to be brought down by unfair and unjustified attacks. I mean, I think I think she's a good politician and generally honourable. Uh, I just disagree with her with, with her objective. Yeah, well, and, let's see uh, whether and hope, and hope she fails. Well, let's see whether her saying that she doesn't think she did anything inappropriate will be enough to save her bacon. I'm not sure it will because it's all, of course she I means she would say that, wouldn't she? Um, but let's move on to Rishi Sunak and the, and the budget today because that's the other big uh, headline that we'll be dealing with. Unless, of course, you want to address the Mohammed bin Salman earrings issue. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, it's quite remarkable um, no, that Rishi. Staying, Su- I'm staying out of the royal. Yeah, stories. very good idea, Rishi Sunak. Um, um, it's been described as the budget of a generation that he's going to make today. I think it's going to be less dramatic than that. I think it's going to be more of a sort of holding pattern because until such time as the economy can be opened up, he can't really say what he's going to do, can he? Absolutely. I think. I, I mean, I think the the hoopla, the media hoopla around this budget has been quite extraordinary, mm. and most of it generated by uh, Rishi Sunak himself. I yeah. mean, the, this is the most remarkable bit of self-promotion. I mean, that that five-minute film uh, of him the other day. I know. Uh, was it was extraordinary. I, 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 I watched it with, uh, with, with open mouthed in a sense. I mean, because it's rock know, star I mean, politics, my, isn't it? It is. But I mean, one of my uh, sidelines is that I teach a course at uh, at, at King's uh, London. Uh, on the on the Blair government, oh. and we spend an awful lot of time on that course discussing these charges against Tony Blair of hiring all these special advisors and politicising the civil service, and then uh, along comes Rishi Sunak, who's 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 using public money to make a 
a video promoting himself. Right. I mean, not just the, not just the Conservative Party, but him uh, as a as a candidate for the for the for the leadership of yeah. the Conservative Party. Well, it's sort effect. of the Rishi Sunak um, um, de- sort of cult of personality, isn't it? It is, and you know, I do wonder whether there's going to be anything left for uh, for him to say when he stands up at twelve thirty today, because uh, we his speech has been going on for a week uh, already. <laughs> I mean, in the sense that you know, I get press releases from the Treasury uh, every every half an hour at the moment. I mean, they they are just yeah. coming in announcing announcing huge amounts of money being spent on this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and you know, by the time he by the by the time he stands up, I suppose. I mean, most people won't have paid attention to all the all the pre-publicity. No, but I mean, but the effect of it is actually something I'm sure that Boris Johnson doesn't mind because it takes everybody's eye off whatever he's doing, and which yesterday was rather embarrassingly the uh, decor inside of Downing Street. So, I mean, as long as Rishi Sunak's making loads and loads of noise <laughs> over there, he's more than happy for him to be the headline actor, isn't he? Well, that's an, absolutely another familiar line in in British political history, isn't it? That actually, prime ministers and chancellors usually have an interest in each other doing well, right. although that causes all sorts of tensions. Uh, you know, it's Gordon Brown and, uh, and, and and Tony Blair at one end of the spectrum and, and David Cameron and George Osborne, who were very close friends as well as uh, political allies, uh, at the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the one yes, thing you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, the one thing you know. If, if Rishi and Mrs. Sunak get in, get their hands on the Downing Street decorations, they won't be having to forge themselves into any kind of secret partnership to fundraise to pay for it because they've got more money uh, than the, the Treasury's got already. <laughs> I think they would be able to pay for it themselves. You're absolutely so. right. And and any earrings that are required, <laughs> absolutely, or, or, or AirPods. Absolutely right. So, what do you reckon then, coming out of this uh, day today? Because he's also doing a press conference, I understand, at five o'clock, uh, Rishi. So he's obviously keeping something back i guess for for that but the furlough we know is well, going to be extended into september which suggests that you know the rollout isn't going to be any quicker than we'd like it to be no i think the press conference this this afternoon is 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 interesting because what always happens with budgets is that you know that because because the leader of the opposition who has to reply to it hasn't seen it in advance mm. uh, one of the most difficult jobs in uh, in, in british politics it means that the initial response to it is is sort of a, a bit flat. But then journalists spend the whole afternoon taking it to pieces. Uh, and by about five o'clock, the budget has start, usually started to unravel. So to have the, have the <laughs> Chancellor come on, come on television and actually answer some questions about it yeah. and defend it uh, is sensible from the Treasury's point of view. Yes. Because, uh, because that's the sort of point at which things usually start going wrong. And because you're such a veteran of these things, John, I'm going to ask you, and I'll give you a couple of minutes to think of it, what your favourite sort of budget moment has been over the years. My favourite, and I can't remember actually if it was a proper budget or if it was just a sort of an, an, an autumn statement or something, but George Osborne and the pasty tax has to be one of the greatest <laughs> events in British <laughs> politics when he put a tax on something and then removed it, I think within 24 hours, didn't he? <laughs> Uh, that was the omni shambles. Yes, yes, it wasn't. Uh, that wasn't the most important thing that he did wrong in that budget as well. I mean, that was the budget where uh, where he got he got all sorts of things wrong. I mean, he actually put up uh, put up taxes or he squeezed the economy in in, in such a way that wasn't uh, that, that that was going too far, and he had to reverse it right. uh, afterwards. Right. Uh, no, my, I'd, yeah. What's my what's my favourite? favorite budget moment i i I think uh, gordon brown possibly uh abolishing the 10p rate of of tax Mm. um and then it took it took not it wasn't until five o'clock that night it was it took days weeks months for it to emerge that this was actually going to um hit a lot of uh, low-paid people rather badly and it took him a very long time 
uh, to dig himself out of that particular hole. I know. It is remarkable, isn't it? They have so many people working on this stuff for so long. And then you go, well, didn't anybody ask that question at any point when you were preparing the budget? Because clearly they didn't. Otherwise, if they had, you would have taken it out. And it is quite... Well, that was... uh, yeah, that was partly Gordon Brown's um, secretive way of working. He wouldn't he he, he wouldn't consult with a wide enough right. circle because I think some somebody might have spotted the problem with that. He just he just slotted it in at the last moment because he thought it looked good. Yes, um, because he was he was desperate to try and reduce the basic rate of uh, of income tax, and mm. that was the way he paid for it. Yeah, I guess we won't be seeing Rishi Sunak with a glass of whiskey either because that seems to have gone by the wayside some time ago, doesn't it? Yeah, no, there'll be, but but there is a, a a lively betting market and the number of sips of water he, he's going to take. Uh, <laughs> but I don't think there's going to be any Coca Cola in that in, in that glass either no. after uh, uh, after his admission that he was a coke addict. Yes, no, I think that's probably not going to be something that anybody's going to want to say during the course of today's budget. John, thank you very much indeed. John Rental, chief political commentator at the Independent Budget Day, always interesting, always fascinating, with the added spice, of course, of Nicola Sturgeon uh, dressed all in red, uh, smiling now as she's giving her evidence to uh, a, a, a committee in Holyrood. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Andrew Griffith, former chief business advisor for Number Ten, Conservative MP for Arundel and South Downs. Andrew, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Pretty Thanks busy old me. day uh, today in politics. Uh, I might ask you about Nicola Sturgeon if you have a view, but uh, first of all, let's tell uh, tell us what you make of uh, what Rishi Sunak's going to do this afternoon. We understand that he is going to extend the furlough until September. Is he going to do anything else for uh, some of the parts of the economy that haven't really had much help? Uh, well, look, I hope so. Um, I, I think... Everyone has benefited ultimately from the fact that the government's put a massive amount of um, of help into the economy. He said, you know, he was going to do whatever it took. And I think he broadly has done that. It's never life's never perfect. But there's a huge amount of help that's been provided. And I, and I hope that carries on because clearly we are not out of the woods yet. We have not got the economy back open again. Um, and I see my constituents are still uh, really suffering in some of the, uh, the frontline areas of the economy. But I hope he's also going to cast things a bit forward as well and tell us, you know, once we do get back and open, uh, how we're going to support the recovery. Yeah, and I think there are those in the Conservative Party and in government, indeed, who have a different view on when that should happen, because obviously the, the figures now are uh, tumbling at a rate of knots. The vaccination rollout is more successful than anybody could have ever hoped. Um, mm. Do you not think that it's, it's time to at least consider moving everything faster? It's definitely time to consider doing that. I think it would be premature right now. We've got a couple of weeks of good data. Um, I've been as keen as anyone to get the economy back open, and I, and I feel the pain of those um, who, who are still prevented from reopening their businesses. Um, personally, I'd give it a few more weeks. The data does look very good. Uh, by the end of this month, uh, there'll be a new round of decisions, decisions, for example, to get students back to university, which is one of the things that the government hasn't yet committed to. Uh, and if the data stays where it is, it would be good to see some progress on that. Um, and then let's just see how it goes. Um, but, that, but underpinning all of this is that I'm very happy and we should all be pretty happy with how the vaccine rollout is, is proceeding. Yes, and I think a lot of people have said to me uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks, certainly, um, you know, why do we keep comparing the things that happened last year to the things that are happening this year in terms of how quickly we can open the economy, given that we now have this vaccine, which we are told by the Secretary of State for Health is pretty much 95% effective at keeping people out of hospital. It does seem to be working pretty well. I mean, day by day, we get different studies about different groups. They're all broadly pointing in the uh, the same direction. I mean, I sit on the Science and Technology Committee, so we shadow fairly 
closely the um, the, the medical advice. Um, but I, th- I think, you know, look, the, the government set out what I would say is a fairly cautious reopening uh, roadmap. Um, I would give it a few more weeks to see where the data comes in, see what's happening in the hospitals. Um, then then it may be appropriate to revisit that. Um, today is, is in many ways a much bigger day. Uh, um, because it's about providing people with certainty. This is all of the support, the furlough, things like that. I'd like to see some certainty on that. So just as people at least have got a sense of when they can reopen their business, even yeah. if it's not as quickly as, as, as might be possible, today would be about putting certainty for some of the financial support packages in place. I don't want the rug to be pulled prematurely, and I don't think that's what the Chancellor uh, would is, is going to do. Um, but then I also want to hear about, you know, what's going to happen about how we're going to rebuild the economy. What are the areas we're going to invest in? How are we going to support skills and infrastructure and investment as well? Because we are going to come back to an open economy at some point. And some of the challenges that were there before yeah, need to be addressed. And that's what we were elected to do. Sure, because lots of people in hospitality are very happy that, um, that the furlough is going to be continued because obviously at the moment they cannot reopen yeah. their businesses. But there are other businesses, I think, which uh, perhaps are not being given a benefit other than a kind of temporary stay of execution by telling them that they can still continue to pay their workers not to work because those jobs that they were doing perhaps are now no longer available. Once this furlough money disappears, they're out of a job. Yeah, and 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 look, I th- I'm sure I'm sure that is that is the case for some. Um, I'm encouraged that it's not the case for as many as people thought. The the figures on on the scale of things like unemployment are looking broadly better. There's a there's a sense of optimism that the economy will bounce back, but there is no substitute, however good the furlough scheme is, and businesses do tell me that that was a really good intervention for getting the economy back open again. I've got a lot of aviation folk, for yeah. example, in the constituency I represent, a lot of pilots. I mean, there's a there's a big intervention needed there for all of us before um, before there's any prospect of them being able to return to work. Yes, I think that's true. So as far as Rishi Sunak's kind of abilities go today in terms of what he can look through the sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the looking glass into, I mean, how far ahead can he really realistically look? Because it's difficult going to be going to be difficult for him, is it not, to kind of uh, pro- project into, say, autumn and what the economy is going to look like then? Yeah, I think I think it, it's it's a tough one. Clearly, um, it's a budget for the next year, um, and I and I hope he, he he gives, you know, different time horizons. The most immediate time horizon is that support for families and businesses. Most people tonight, when they talk to the family over their tea, it's going to be about is the schemes going to carry on and for how long? Because that's what people are living on day to day. Things like universal credit, you know, is that going to uh, continue for the time being? Secondly, I think he's got to be honest about the challenges, um, you know, that, that, that no one can pretend that there's a forest of money trees. So at some point, not now, but at some point, we're going to have to tack to how we're going to deal with that going forward. We all know who's who's going to pay because it's all of us at the end of the day. It's all of us that have uh, broadly benefited from keeping the country going. Um, and it's all of us that ultimately are going to have to share that burden. Um and then we've we've got to rebuild our economy. Uh, we want to get behind, you know, new growth sectors, green jobs, you know, upskilling our economy, giving more people uh, a second chance at education. Um, and I, de- I definitely don't want us to lose sight that, of that. Who's going to pay for all that? Well, the, that's that's what the chancellor has to uh, has to balance. I mean, I think I think there is there is a lot of money um, in the system, um, and it's a question of putting a lot of that to productive uses. You know, getting those public projects, the infrastructure projects going, 
um, taking some of the existing skills budget and, and sharpening that up, improving the productivity of British firms. But I mean, this is sound, a great country. It all, yeah, it all sounds a bit woolly, though, Andrew, doesn't it? I mean, it's all very well saying let's build up some, you know, some, some big public uh, sector projects. But, I mean, they haven't exactly gone well, have they? HS2, massively over budget, nowhere near finished. And by the time it is finished, who knows if anybody's even going to be travelling by train? Well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't define everything good that the government does in one particular project. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm particularly excited about is the skills guarantee. Right? If you missed out for the first time um, on a chance of higher education, uh, whatever your background, whatever you're doing now, um, you get the chance to go back and have a second chance. Now, that's not heavy infrastructure. That's not about projects that last twenty or thirty years. That's about practical help um, that anybody has has the ability to access yeah. um, in the in the near term. As that, long as that there's a job at the end, as long as there's a building capability. Yeah, as long as there's a job at the end of it. Well, there are jobs at the end of it, and typically those jobs, you know, the economy that we're building is going to be a higher skilled economy. And the challenge is that too many people have been left behind because they had one chance at education. Uh, that may have been some time ago for a different sort of economy me that we had. The economy that we're going to have in the future is really going to be quite different, right? I mean, we don't have enough um, engineers involved in installing green energy solutions, right? I mean, you can't get for love nor money. Uh, if you go out today and try and get your um, home home heating switched over to a new form of technology that everyone agrees is where we're going to be in the future, there just literally are not enough skilled people. Um, when you to say everyone to, agrees, to I always worry when politicians say everyone agrees because everyone doesn't agree mm. at all. You might think everyone agrees, but they don't. People don't want to spend a fortune on repackaging their heating solutions. People, if they were given cheaper solutions, might move over, but they're not going to spend more money doing it. Well, look, I think I think it's fair. To, it's fair to worry when everyone says everyone agrees. That's a very fair, uh, fair call out. Um, but but it's also fair to say that um, we would all like, I think, that that our heating at home was a bit more efficient, that our homes are a little bit more insulated and that our heating bills are a bit lower. That, that's that I don't that's think true. Particularly but controversial. It, but no, it's not. But but if you have to expand, uh, expend a load more money in order to make that happen, people aren't very willing to do it. I think I think what the government should be doing if they want to have people move over to more greener and more efficient energy sources, they should they should make it worth their while, as it were. And, and the government is, in fairness, the government is absolutely putting its money where its mouth is uh, in terms of, of, of skills programmes, but also grants for individual householders. Um, the same thing would be true about broadband. Right. And you can pick me up again. But I think most of us would agree. And the pandemic's probably accelerated this, that fast and reliable broadband in every part of the United Kingdom uh, is something that we would all like more of. Well, yeah. But uh, I mean, the Tories a... have been saying that since David Cameron was in charge. And, you know, you can I can still send you to Corfe Castle in Dorset where you won't be able to get mm. a phone signal halfway down the high street. Never mind. Get any 4G. Well, we are we are in the process. No, no, we're of, talking six of, or seven of... years since that was said. I, I do not I do not disagree with you, um, but but the government is now unleashing that investment. There is five billion. There are vans rolling, um, and one of the barriers to that again is, is is skills. It's just you know how quickly can you get people trained up and and ready to do the jobs uh, that the government's doing. I think OpenReach is recruiting about a thousand new engineers at the moment. It's not in that particular case. Sometimes it is, Mike, but in that particular case, I don't think it's about the lack of government investment or the lack of demand 
there's genuinely a, um, a skills gap that is being solved at the mm. moment. OK, I look forward to it. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Andrew Griffith, former Chief Business Advisor for Number 10, Conservative MP for Arundel and South Downs, saying that there's going to be a new economy coming. Uh, we have heard that before, it has to be said. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. Rishi Sunak, meanwhile, is still pursuing this idea that somehow the taxpayers have got to pay for all of this furlough money, that somehow the taxpayer has got to pay for the damage that's been caused to the economy by COVID-19. How about this? How about we get the money from China? Why should we be paying for it? It's not our fault that we had to shut down the economy. I didn't tell anyone to shut down everything so that I would have to somehow subsidise it in the future for the rest of time. I didn't agree to any of that. And neither did you. We talk about everyone agrees. I think everyone agrees that China should pay some kind of compensation for this debacle. Of course they won't. But it would be nice to hear the odd politician saying so. This is Talk Radio. 
uh, about your two dogs, you know, the grown, the fully grown nine stone Gracie and the small pup, yeah. four month old Jesse. You and know I, me too well. I do. I do. Well, you know, I take a great interest in your dogs, as you know. And I mean, I just wondered if it was an allegory for salmon versus sturgeon in some way. Well, it's just, you know, when you watch, when you, when you, when I watch our pup uh, facing up to the big dog, mm. and I think, you know, I, and she's so fearless, will not, will not be bowed will not be cowed yeah. by the by the by the bigger dog's behavior and right. you know as a dad i'm sure you've been in the situation yourself you're, you're always having to, to say to, to your kids to stand up to bullies yeah. because there really isn't anything else you can do if you back down in the face of a bully it just gets worse mm. and and so i think i have to be i have to not give in to bullies <laughs> you know i'm i'm a long way from the playground and yeah. I, you know i'm now a 54 year old man and but I, I take my inspiration, some of my inspiration from uh, from a little four month old Irish wolfhound pup who, you know, when the when the big dog tries to back her into a corner, she mm. just comes in all paws flying. And I think, <laughs> yes, yes, that's the way it's done. And that's it. Right. It's, and, and you can either be one of those people or you can be the, the opposite of those people. And, and no matter how old you get, there are still plenty of people out there who want to try and bully you into submission. Some of them are uh, politicians. Some of them work for, you know, government departments. Some of them would have you believe that you must do what you're told. And all of that feeds into where we currently are, doesn't it? Yeah, I loved your the line you had there. You, you attributed it to the Dalai Lama about if you if you always tell the truth, you yeah. don't have to remember anything. Right. I, you know, you get that's one of those that gets attributed to, to other people. Right. But in essence, it's it's absolutely perfect. You know, there's a, there's a great freedom uh, in just if you just say what you, what you truthfully think. Mm. You don't have to keep you know you don't have to keep qualifying what you said before because right. it, it becomes part of a of, of a of a continuing story. Uh, and that that as well. So life can be quite simple in a way, you know, if, if you keep just simple things like standing up to bullies and telling the truth, as, right. you know, as, as you as you understand it. But yeah, the, the situation that that we're in just now in Scotland is is clearly. I, I find it it looks exhausted to me. It, it, to, you know, I mean, we can go into the specifics of the individuals, of course we can. But the whole system has a kind of a a sense of exhaustion around it. Uh, it, it looks like a game that's just being played mm. by people who are so practiced in every nuance of the game that even they o- almost come across as being a bit bored with it. It's like watching people play, you know, knots and crosses, yes. tic-tac-toe, mm. and there's a kind of a futility about it because if both people understand the way the game works, you can't win and you're just you're just doing the moves. Right. Uh, and I, th- I think the, the inquiry feels like that. I thought it was very interesting watching... Alex Salmond, I hadn't, I hadn't seen him in the, fl- in the, not in the flesh. I was watching him on a TV screen, but I hadn't seen him for a while, and, and he looked different. Uh, you know, he, he looked, um, I don't know, he looked tired uh, and and put upon in a way that I hadn't seen before. And of course, he's now a he's now a private citizen, mm, right? Uh, and he's he's you know, and he doesn't you know, he's paying his own way. Uh, and and he's out there beyond the bu- the bubble of protection that's that's extended to to politicians like you know like Nicola Sturgeon who are who are still in the game. Yes. And I think there's there was something, I think it, it was quite revealing. You know that out in the out away from the rarefied atmosphere of the protection of of you know the political world. You know he really looked like a like a heavyweight boxer who had taken who'd taken a lot of taken a lot of punches. Yes. He was still in there swinging, but you, and he was still he's formidable. By, by my goodness, he's a formidable character, and I think always will be. Yeah. you know, eloquent and and a, and a master of, of you know, of the spoken word. But he still looked different. But mm. we're in the watching the committee itself. You know, there's there's a kind of ennui about it, 
you can almost sense the atmosphere in the room is, is stuffy and stultifying. Yes. And this this idea about break, breaching of the ministerial code, well, it kind of, it almost belongs to another era. You know, there's no even supposing even supposing Nicola Sturgeon was to admit that she had broken ministerial code. Mm. It's, it's not as though anyone's going to come along and put her in Parliament jail. No. You know, and it, it won't necessitate her, her resignation if she, if she doesn't want to. You know, you can't make her resign. And, and the ministerial code, it belongs to a bygone era. Mm. It, it would be a bit like, you know, when you watch somebody in the headmaster's office and the headmaster says, you know, you've let the house down, you've let the school down and you've let me down. But worst of all, you've let yourself down. Right. But in this <laughs> in this context, Nicola Sturgeon is the headmistress. Right. And she's not about to give herself any consequences for doing this. And and so watching it is just a bit tiring. Yes, I think you're right. And also all the people playing the game are not affected by the outcome of it either way, particularly because they'll all still be doing the same thing. They'll all still be, you know, turning up and getting their money and getting their expenses and living the life that they live um, until such time as they either get found out or get dis, uh, deselected, which is quite hard to do in Scotland. Uh, because of proportionate representation. And I think you're absolutely right. There is a kind of uh, weird new uh, reality, a bit like when uh, Boris Johnson was accused and then found guilty of proroguing Parliament illegally. And everyone was talking about dragging him from Downing Street and locking him up. And people sort of misunderstood the term illegal because it wasn't actually illegal. In order to, uh, oh. to do something illegal, you have to break a law which was in place when you broke it. This was a law that was brought in after he broke supposedly the law that they then invented to accuse him of breaking. And you kind of go, there's too many lawyers here, obviously. I think we've seen, I think we've, we've, we've crossed a Rubicon into a different kind of political world. I don't think that kind of honour code is there anymore. No. I, I don't know the extent to which it ever was. Maybe it was all just smoke and mirrors at all time. But there was a sense, you did get a sense that people could be put into a certain set of circumstances where although it wasn't, it wasn't a legal matter, there was a there was a matter of personal reputation and personal honour which, which dictated yes. or seemed to dictate a person's decisions to step away from public office. You know, like John Profumo or, mm. you know, but that, well, that people, even, people, point going to, back. people point to Henry McLeish, uh, who was one of the first, uh, it, first ministers of indeed, Scotland. Indeed, I mean, resigned. he had some financial irregularities yeah. about a, 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 a minor stuff Maybe. in the, you know, but by comparison. And yet there was still that he was still part of an older, an older world where where people said this just doesn't look good. Right. And I think. Everyone involved in, in the in, at the committee, uh, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, uh, previous First Minister Alex Salmond, I think they're so preoccupied with what they're doing that they're not really paying attention to how it is for the people looking on. Mm. You know, on, on one side, you've got the people for whom Nicola Sturgeon can do no wrong and they'll, they will never call for her resignation. And then on the other side, there are those in an equally binary position, uh, you know, who, who feel that, um, that, you know, 14 years of, of the SNP is... Is, is too long. But the, the people at the heart of it are just so obsessed with their own performances on stage that they don't seem to, they don't seem to care, right. I think, what people think. I, I literally, I think that's the saddest part of it. I think they're, they're playing the game, they're obsessed with the game for its own sake, but they don't really care. And, uh, you know, I don't think anyone's going to be doing any resigning, mm. no matter what. 
do you the think, feast, feast with. Do you think, though, that there's a slight change in emphasis or, or behaviour because this is now a national story as opposed to just a Scottish story, that the, you know, that the people from, from London have come to look and see what's going on and, and the sort of the, the rather protectionist Scottish media, aside from one or two exceptions, uh, has now had to open its, um, open its books, if you like, uh, to see what it's been doing uh, over the last uh, the couple of years because there hasn't been an awful lot of scrutiny going on. Yeah, well, I think it's more uncomfortable. Uh, I think uh, having to face up to scrutiny it is uncomfortable and having a bright light turned on, on your behaviour and, and the behaviour of those that you, that you master mm. uh, is uncomfortable. But, you know, as, as, as the past has shown, if, you've got a, if your neck is of pure enough brass, then you've only got to tough it out. That was probably always the case. Mm. You, you know, they've, they've just got to tough it out um, and because of the binary position that's that's there in Scotland, where about half the country is is for, and about half the country is against, uh, and and no matter what happens next, the, the positions of those people in those entrenched camps isn't going to change. And that's exhausting as well because you think any any victories that are had, be they in referenda or in or in elections or or, or as the outcome of a report by a committee like this, it just doesn't matter. Mm. Because uh, you know, it will be a, any victory is a pyrrhic victory, because whoever wins, a, about half of the population is opposed to them, uh, and and won't be encouraged and won't be inclined to move in the direction that that other side wants to go in. So it just feels it's like a bad dream. Mm. It's like walking through treacle in a nightmare where you think we're just never going to get out of this, and the decision becomes: Do I watch this out of some sort of morbid fascination, or do I not? Yeah because it doesn't seem as though there will be consequences of any meaningful sort. Yes. And when I said, you know, there's too many lawyers around, I wasn't kidding, because I think one of the things that, that society has suffered from in this country over the past 10 to 20 years is the sort of introduction of lawyers into almost every aspect of what we do. You know, you can't get insurance anymore now for lawyers making noises, lawyers suing the NHS for things that they didn't do right, lawyers in politicians' uh, pockets and also lawyers becoming politicians and so they all talk in a particular way and I think they don't they're not interested in really uh, coming up with ideas they're interested in kind of dulling everything down and dumbing everything down so that only they can talk about things for hours and hours and hours on end and everybody kind of tunes out I used to have this theory that Tony Blair actually did this in order to just make people so disinterested in politics they wouldn't bother voting anymore for me, a lot of it, yes, I, I agree. And I, but I think a lot of it for me comes down, is visible or audible in, in the language that's used. Mm. I, I, I struggle all the time. I try to remind myself not to use, not to allow my speech to become infected with the, the sort of legalese yeah. and litigious terms that you talk about. And it's not just legal terms. You know, I, all, all the time I'm struggling to remember not to say things like going forward. <laughs> Yes. Because any time I hear those words escape me, you know, I want, you know, I want to give myself a slap in the face. Yeah. And because I feel it, in the same way that our town centres have all become sort of homogenised by identical street furniture and the same branded shops that you don't know where you are. Right. That character has gone away. And you could be anywhere. It, it, you could be anywhere. And sometimes when you listen to people talking, be they people in the media or politicians or lawyers, they've kind of uh, they've they've infected one another's language mm. and we all use these essentially meaningless terms all the time and I'm, I, I try to remember just to speak like me yes and, and just and to use straightforward language rather than otherwise it's like a fur lined groove that mm. you can feel yourself sort of stumbling into 
and, and I think it's partly because you think, well, if I keep on using these well, these oft repeated phrases, I'll be safe. Right. Because I hear people saying them and they don't seem to get into trouble. So I'll say them too and I'll be all right. Right. And I, I think it's incumbent upon us to, you know, in the same, it's like, it's like safeguarding regional dialects or something, or mm. it's like, it's just, it's so important, I think, to put things in your own words and to speak honestly and not to be tricked into just using the jargon and the and the and the corporate speak. Corporate speaks everywhere. I know. Uh, and it, well, I mean, it, it I, I amuse my myself. Heart. I amuse myself sometimes when um, uh, I've got nothing better to do. I look up some job uh, descriptions of, of uh, various jobs in the media, particularly now. Very very conscious of it. Um, and you read it, and it tells you what the job is, and it has a title that you don't understand. Um, the description of the job is incomprehensible because it's full of jargon that I just don't use. And I don't know what it is, you know, like, you know, reaching out for something or other into a community of platforms of something. And you're kind of going, I don't even know what this job is for. I, you know, it also doesn't have the salary on it because you have to apply to find out what that would be. And it's almost like misinformation is now information. Uh huh, and it does it does it does come down uh, into language. I think it, we've made we're making um, daily life a, a game yeah. of, of Byzantine complexity. Mm. You know of you know everything has been uh, atomized. You know, so a job that would have been a, a job twenty years ago has been has been fractured into thirty responsibilities. You know, and, and each one of those little fragments of what was once a job uh, has become a job in its own right. Yeah. But and in order to make it sound like a job, you, you know, you have to disguise the pointlessness of it in jargon. Yes. So that people don't actually interrogate what you're saying. And they just oh, there are so many people I ask a lot of people what they do. And they tell me what they do, and I, I've got no idea what they've just said. <laughs> there are so many occupations out there that people are doing. Yes. God bless them. But I've had it. They've explained to me what they do on several occasions, and I'm none the wiser. Yeah, and a lot, th of, these, I... a lot of these people fear that uh, they 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 won't have a job, so they've kind of created an entire area an entire arena of jobs that they can do you know like you could become a diversity coordinator for one organization and that means you uh -huh. can go and work anywhere as a diversity coordinator and bring your you know years of experience of diversity coordinating but you don't really know what it means i know and it's everything i mean even social distancing i try not to use yeah. that I, I hate for that. me that means for, for me that means keeping away from people yeah which has a different has a different ring to it mm. What does social distancing even mean? How yeah. can you be sociable about being distanced? It's, it's like a, you know, it, it doesn't seem to make sense to me in any, in any way. But our, our language is, is is just littered with these uh, with these oxymorons and, and pointless pointless terminology. And I, I long for people just having straightforward conversations with each other and not and not falling into these into these traps. I mean, I, I still think what I do is quite simple to understand. You know, I, I write some books. Yeah. And when called upon, you know, I, I, you know, I have in the past presented the occasional television program, and I think that's that's very easy for anybody listening to me to know what it is that I then do. Right. I write, you know, I write a column for a newspaper. You can get it. And I'm so. I'm have you so found? Have you found yourself? Have you found yourself being? And here's a word for you: that the phrase that you hate, differently edited now from the oh. old days. You know, when it used to be the it used to be edited for um, quality, as it were. Um, and your uh -huh. editor, your editor might say. You know, maybe you could you could move this around and maybe do this a little bit better. Whereas presumably now you get edited for um, political correctness, effectively. Oh, I used to. I worked. I worked in a local paper mm. uh, in East Lothian, East Lothian Courier, east of Edinburgh, I based in well. Haddington. 
and we had a we had a terrifying uh, owner, editor, proprietor, editor, Kenny Whitson. Right. <laughs> he's, 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 he's no longer among us. Um, and he was a terrifying man because he just shouted. Right. He shouted at me a lot. Right. <laughs> I was his, I was the deputy deputy editor there. But you know, when you got properly shouted at by somebody, it was fine because you you knew what they meant. Right. <laughs> you endeavoured not to do that again. Yeah. I don't know, that wasn't being that wasn't being differently edited. That was being picked up for having made a mistake. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and being and, shouted at to make sure you didn't do it again. And often, <laughs> um, you know, that now is is impossible. It's an impossibility for that to happen anywhere. So the amount of mistakes that get made and don't go kind of punished because you're not allowed to punish anybody anymore for making mistakes. You have to take them into a room and teach them that, you know, uh, it was probably your fault they made the mistake uh, and you're very sorry to have to ask them to try and do it again, but could they maybe do it in a slightly better way if that's all right with them? You know, I mean, it just doesn't work for me. It's why, it's why in a way, I mean, if you've, if you've come from that environment, you know, where you've had, you've been taken into somebody's office or, or worse yet, if it's happened in front of everybody, right. you know, you've had one of those addressings down mm. that everybody could hear. Um, it, it's part of what gives you the armor that when the, yeah. all this social media stuff, all these anonymous things that are coming at you, mm. you know, and you don't know who they are. It's not a real name, and it's you know they're just they're just anonymous uh, identities for people to hurl abuse. Yes. And you think that that's just not the same. It's not if a lot, not if a physically imposing person <laughs> no. has stood with you in, a, in an open office right. and and lambasted you till you feel the, the look, hot air and the spittle on we're, your face. We're, we're both remembering those experiences with with some kind of uh, warmth because actually it was honest. It was great. It was an honest interaction, of course, and it was stimulating, and you learned something from it, and you never did it again effectively uh-huh. if you had any brains anyway but listen neil we're at the end i'm afraid so listen uh, very nice to see you again we'll talk again next week all will be well i'm sure uh, for nicola sturgeon but we'll see uh, how soon she starts making decisions about lifting scotland out of the gloom and doom neil oliver there reporting in uh, from sterling where uh, it's probably just as foggy as is here uh, certainly a lot colder the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio Right now, though, uh, we're going to have another laugh about something which is quite seriously kicking off. And it is what we said would happen, basically. Meghan Markle uh, and Prince Harry, or has, as he's become known, uh, will be doing their interview with Oprah Winfrey on Sunday. Uh, Today in The Times, Royal Aids reveal Meghan bullying claim uh, ahead of that particular interview. Now, it turns out, if you remember, that Meghan, when she was at Kensington Palace, was losing staff at a remarkable rate. It turns out now that there was quite a few of them who made claims that she bullied them out of a job, that she bullied them while they were in the job. There's also another staggering revelation in the stories this morning in The Times in which it says that she was uh, in, rece- in receipt of a pair of earrings from Mohammed bin Salman, who's the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, a man who's been linked by the CIA and Joe Biden, the President of the United States, uh, to the murder uh, of Jamal Khashoggi uh, over in Turkey a little while ago. Let's talk now to Angela Levin, our favourite royal biographer, because uh, this, I suppose, Angela, uh, was not entirely unexpected. No, I think that she crossed a red line and there was a feeling that um, the other side had to make a comment because we believe, and we don't know, it might be just good publicity, that the interview with Oprah Winfrey on Sunday night in America, Monday night here, um, will be the victim game Mm. where they're talking about how awful everything is how a racist um, Britain is, how the um, royal family were not kind. And I think there was this um, surge that something had to be done the other side. Now, it's incredibly unusual for that to come out. But you have to realise that the um, uh, 
their communications director said in 2018, these are emails from 20 memos from 2018, how much of a bully she was yeah. to the staff and that so many of them were frightened of her. Um, and I, I don't suppose this will come up in um, the interview on Sunday. So they had to get their voices heard. Megan's always talking about she wanted her voice heard. One of the reasons she left the royal family was that she could not have a voice. So these people are now having a voice, which they're perfectly entitled to. Of course. And, I mean, it's very interesting for me as well how quickly um, the statement from um, Harry and Meghan's people came back after the Times obviously put these accusations to them. Uh, she denies yeah. them, of course, but it's very vague, isn't it? She talks about somebody uh, being dismissed because of misconduct. But I remember back to those days when we were covering it at the time, as I'm sure you do, that it was remarkable how quickly uh, she got rid of staff and how, how much of a turnaround there was inside their household because people didn't stay yeah, for very long. Sorry. No, yeah, there were complaints that she was sending emails through at four or five in the morning mm. and very, very demanding. The um, first uh, broad um, engagement they did on behalf of the Queen to Australia and other countries, um, she made a big thing of showing that she'd made some um, special bread, sweet bread. Mm. And uh, it wasn't her, it was the staff. And she was screaming at them all night to get ingredients and to make it and to give it to people. So there's been this um, doubt about her generosity and compassion, which she's, she and Harry go on and on and on about uh, very early on. You would imagine that someone who came as a stranger, not a royal background, not an aristocrat, into the royal family would at least give it a year or so, just watching, just learning, just listening. Mm. But Meghan, you know, very, very confident of herself. She wants to rule the world and she was going to rule the royal family and is very disappointed that that hasn't been allowed. So, in my view... She's getting her own back. Well, and think, so it's entitled to the palace to um, at least say something. Yes, and it looks as though, as well, um, they haven't really addressed, aside from saying that, well, Harry wouldn't involve himself in any matters to do with the royal household. Well, really, uh, according to the Times, he went to uh, one of the people involved in these bullying claims and asked for them, please, not to pursue it on the basis that uh, that might be damaging to the royal family. Um, and if he yes. has done that, that's absolutely beyond the pale, isn't it? The word the Times use, which is even more powerful, is he begged them not mm. to do it. So this is really something he was desperate. He's been desperate about Meghan ever since they've met. That's why nowadays when they're living, it should be the joyous time in their life. Mm. They had one baby expecting another. He looks so anxious and fraught because presumably he doesn't want anything that she's not pleased with. Maybe he's frightened of her too. Well, I think it looks a bit like he might be frightened of her. She seems like a fairly formidable woman. Uh, she wants uh, what, she, what she wants, and she normally gets what she wants, and that's the thing uh, that we can see here. And she will be absolutely livid about this, because in addition to this story, uh, we're also hearing um, from Associated Newspapers that she's demanding from them some kind of front-page apology the judge in the case who already ridiculously granted her uh, right to privacy on the grounds that he didn't have to hear any evidence at all has apparently refused to allow the Mail um, and Associated Newspapers to appeal. Um, so they're now going to a higher court. I mean, this is going to run and run, isn't it? 
Yes, it is. You wonder why, you know, what on earth is somebody who's got so much going for them to just go on and on relentlessly? And of course, they're now, you know, there's one thing after the other. The other thing they've put out now is International Women's uh, Day, oh, yeah. which is next week. And in there, it said we've got to un uh, release lots of compassion, compassion. We've got to be compassionate to women. We've got to be caring <laughs> for them. She's a, a proud feminist. And yet the three people, the two who left and the one who felt totally undermined and frightened of her are all women. Yes. So what about the hypocrite, hypocrisy? Well, also this idea that she wore earrings, which at the time she lied about because she told the staff to put out a press release saying that the earrings that she was wearing in this uh, engagement in Fiji were borrowed from a jeweller's shop when in fact they were gifted to her by Mohammed bin Salman. Now, you may take a view of Saudi Arabia. Um, you may think that there's nothing wrong with what Saudi Arabia does. Uh, you may, in fact, want to do business with Saudi Arabia. But she, in her communities of compassion, surely would not wish to be aligned uh, with a man who's been accused of the brutal murder uh, of a Washington Post journalist. Yes. I mean, her team, very quick on the uptake on this, of course, have said she borrowed it. They claim they didn't say from a jeweller. Mm. We'll have to wait and see about that. But it is so disrespectful. It's so distasteful. And she should have listened. Um, you know, she probably didn't realise the significance of that. I would give her that. But Well, I don't know. I mean, she wore the earrings three weeks after he was murdered. Yes. You know. Well, she always claimed she never read the newspapers. No, so course, yeah. I'm giving her a tiny bit of leeway there. Um, <laughs> but Prince Harry would know, and he should have said, my darling, you know, you can't wear them. You've got backups full of wonderful jewellery. Yeah. Don't wear that. Right. Inappropriate. Or, you know, he could have dipped into his £30 million fortune and actually bought her a pair himself. And then how about, uh, hey, presto, she could wear the prince, her own prince's earrings instead of the one from Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Good idea. A bit late. But you know, I mean, they never seem to think of spending their own money. They're too busy raking it in from all sorts of other people. Now, here's an interesting thing for you, right? Because I was saying earlier in the week, um, or last week, I think, that uh, I, if I was at Netflix, I wouldn't be too happy about this idea that they've given their first interview to CBS and Oprah Winfrey. But it's been put to me by somebody who knows more about these things than I do in America, that in fact, the deal that they've done with Netflix and with Spotify is not so much about what they do for those two companies in terms of output, but it's what they do for them in terms of social activities. So that, for example, if you're running Spotify and you're running Netflix and you want to have a dinner party with Oprah Winfrey and a couple of high-end Hollywood stars, Haz and Megs are the exact couple that you would pick on uh, to organise that. And so if you pay them bucket loads of money, they'll organise a nice party for you. Yes, that's super woke, isn't it? Yes. And also they're using them as PR representatives. Mm to pump up what they're doing. I think that's a bit distasteful too. It's very Harry, distasteful. It's, I mean, it's, 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 it's pimping them out really to be yes. uh, the lure uh, for business to be done around them. Who wants to be a pimp? I mean, they don't need that. Right. They should perhaps take less and actually be independent. It's very distasteful. The other thing that I was talking to somebody about yesterday was once they've done this interview with Oprah, and they've talked about the royal family and they've made allegations, no doubt, about Britain being full of racists and horrible people and ghastly individuals who did nothing uh, but try and do them harm. They've got not much else to say, really, have they? Well, we think it might go on forever. You know, how many tellors can you tell? I mean, if she's fighting everybody all the time, nonstop, you know, there'll be many, many battles 
Uh, we might have the war over the weekend, but the, the rest, mini battles are going to carry on, I think, for a long time, because that's what they've got to say. And for some extraordinary reason, they both need to be victims at um, oh, yes. various well, I love this quote, as I'm sure you do, where she says that uh, the, she's saddened by this latest attack on her character, particularly as someone who has been the target of bullying herself and is deeply committed to supporting those who have experienced pain and trauma. And there she goes yes. again with the pain and trauma of living in a multi-million dollar mansion in Montecito. I mean, what about her father's pain and trauma, uh, who's yeah. still never seen his grandson, who's still never met her husband, uh, and yes. who she has apparently no interest in ever seeing again? Yes, exactly. Um, she um, is also um, saying that she... she oops, I just forgot what I was going to say. Um, yeah. That's true. Um, she's giving all the money that she um, damages that she gets from the Mail on Sunday to a bullying charity. And that sort of makes you laugh because she's uh, been called a bully herself. Well, it is rather ironic. And what about uh, your kind of inside knowledge on how this all came about? Because one of the people who's named in the Times story uh, is somebody who used to work for uh, for both princes but has now effectively moved across and works only for William running one of his uh, charitable foundations do you yes. uh, suspect the hand of William in any of this um, I'm sure that he and William talked together and but when I was um, seeing the what was going on in Kensington Palace quite a lot um, mm. two or three years ago um, the communications director had far too much work um, they were astonished at how demanding Meghan was from the beginning, mm. he, he, I was told that in a very nice way, you know, they were very sympathetic towards this, but she made huge demands and it couldn't do too. And of course, uh, William and Kate, like other senior members, cherish their workers. They're very kind to them. It's sort of like a family, mm. but a lot of respect thrown in. And um, they, they felt that they, they couldn't continue like that. So they split the Royal Foundation. They were going to do it at some point because Meghan only wanted to make her own decisions with Harry. But in fact, they um, did it very, very quickly so that they could get out of this um, bog, really, yes. disrespect and, and tyranny. And you do have to wonder as well whether their departure from these shores was in any way sort of speeded up or heightened uh, by these allegations. Well, I think it's um, they would have been given a chance to live quietly and mm. do what they wanted and get on with the life that they craved. At least they said that. But in fact, they've been very spiteful, said nasty things on their Instagram, criticised the royal family, made sure somehow or other they would be um, on the front news of newspapers day after day, week after week. So you can't just be... I mean, the Queen's... Uh, one of the Queen's favourite mottos is never complain, never explain. Mm. But there comes a time when you have to say something. She did something. She's cut them off from all their engagements and patronages. Mm. But it does need a constant fight back, not in the same way, but proof of what happens when you let people sort of run riot and they don't except anything's been good. We've never had a word about how grateful Meghan is mm. for what she's learned from the royals, for Harry, for providing her with a £33 million wedding. You know, it's just grab, grab, grab. Mm. Take, not give, despite all the stuff that she puts on, the, on their website.
It's quite remarkable. Incredible story. The story continues to unfold. Angela, thanks very much indeed. We'll speak, I'm sure, uh, very soon once more. Angela Levin, a big weekend coming up because there's going to be more revelations coming out of Buckingham Palace after this story today. Uh, there's going to be more allegations, I would imagine, about the bullying nature of Meghan Markle and the way that she operates because there were an awful lot of people who worked for her for not very long. I think you'll find. And of course, the idea that she would wear a pair of earrings gifted to her by a man who's been described as one of the bloodiest dictators that's ever walked the earth. Well, I just wonder whether she even can justify any of that. We shall see. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.